Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is coming in from America, though I'm not quite sure where, but we'll get to that. Um, I will start out, though, by um, asking if you'd like to introduce yourself, Laura. Um, yeah, I'm Laura Arnold, um, usually known by at Reaper Sower on Instagram, and I... I'm a content creator, but also in the menswear industry, doing the creative and many other, uh, I guess, jobs for J Press. Um, we're a small team, so everybody wears many hats, as we like to say. So nowadays, you're actually working in the menswear industry, but that is right. kind of yeah. recent, and you've had kind of a st- steep trajectory on it, I think, because your own journey in menswear started some years ago. Yeah. Sh- shall we sort of loop loop back to where you first developed an interest? Yeah, so I, um, I always say that it kind of developed when I was studying abroad in London in college, and I became really fascinated uh, with tweed when I was there because I always kind of made it a point where every country I visited I would um, – either buy or uh, experience something that related back to that country. Um, and British tweed is phenomenal. So I, um, I remember one day in between classes, I discovered uh, the brand Walker Slater and I kind of ran to their shop um, and bought a pair of trousers. And that was the first time that I had ever been somewhere where they had complimentary um, alterations because I was I was ready to just take them with me and they were like no 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 wait <laughs> like we'll we'll measure it out and, and you can come back and pick them up and I was like oh that, that's nice and then I was like well how much is going to cost and they're like oh it's free um and so that was such a foreign experience and concept to me um around clothes and that clothes could kind of be an experience um so I I kind of like took that and then really liked that um and then for the rest of my time there uh and kind of like country hopping i i kept having this like feeling in in like my head where it's like oh you need to find a vintage shop here or like some kind of classic menswear shop here and like see what they have um and so then when i got back to the us after all of that i it that kind of it faded a little bit um but I still kind of had this uh, healthy obsession with clothes, um, specifically classic menswear. And then the pandemic happened, um, and that that happened my senior year of college. And so we were all sent home, and and I didn't quite know what to do with my time. Um, and I'm a very creative person, and so I was like, maybe I'll make an Instagram to kind of archive all of these outfits that I'm not wearing but I can take a few hours out of my day to like go through everything that I have and look at everything like a puzzle and try to find what could go together and how many um, outfits that you could make out of like the stuff that I had. Um, So I made that and then through that, I really accidentally found um, the denim and heritage goods community, um, which I still really have a huge appreciation for. And Fell, fell into that for a little bit. Um, and that was also the first time then that I had ever realized that there are communities around clothes. 
um, and also that people care about like such minute details um, and specs and and that also interested me because it was kind of like okay well like like why is a one shirt better than the other shirt especially because i'm wearing um, a blue and white striped oxford shirt right now and i my girlfriend always makes fun of me because i have like six of them in my closet and she's like well why do you need more than one and i'm like well they're all different um <laughs> and so so i i took that and then ended up deciding um you know i want to really do creative stuff but for men's fashion and then I've, I've kind of, it was stepping stones along the way to get to J Press, um, working for smaller brands, um, doing even just, even if it was just like one project at a time. Um, and I connected with one of my vintage dealer friends in Philadelphia. And I was like, hey, how can I learn more about the clothes? And, and he kind of very bluntly was like, well, you, you can't really unless you like work in it and like you feel them every day and you develop knowledge through experience and he was like but there are I can point you in the direction of these communities that maybe you can learn a little bit of a baseline um information about and one of them was the Ivy Style Facebook group um and I was a little apprehensive about that um just because it's a lot of uh like just to be blunt, old white men who have a um, stere have been stereotyped as <laughs> very conservative, and I'm I'm very uh, not conservative person, <laughs> and so I was kind of like I don't know how I'm going to be received by these people. Um, so I kind of lurked in the background for a little and picked up the little tips and tricks that they had, um, because to me. Uh, like a very defined style, like Ivy style is a puzzle. And I really like to figure out that puzzle and kind of perfect it. Um, so I, I was watching and then one day I, I was kind of like, okay, this is my, my time to take a stab at this. Um, and I posted one photo that with an outfit that really now looking back on that um, was kind of close. I, I would say out of a hundred percent, I would have given it maybe like a, a 50. So I got some of the elements right and others not. And But instead of getting really, really negative, um, unhelpful feedback, everybody was very gracious. And so I was like, oh, maybe this could be an actual interest. Um, and this is really fun to me in this community, similar to the denim and heritage goods one, seems like they, they're here to help each other. So I kind of continued with that until, um, one of the moderators of the Facebook group reached out to me and was uh, kind of said, hey, I, I am good friends with Robert Scalero from J Press. Um, he's the chief merchandising officer. And he reached out to me to see if he could, um, if I could connect the two of you. And so I was like, sure. And Robert ended up calling me a few times. Um, and I ended up coming into the office a few times over the course of maybe four or five months um and i kept saying each time like you know i would really love to work here <laughs> if you have a job and and each time he was like oh we're, well i'm trying to see if like a a bubble will open for you and so then after a few months of doing that he he eventually did um was able to give me an offer and then i left 
uh, my previous job and started there and have been there since then. And I've really done almost every job at JPress. I've worked in um, as a sales associate on Fridays in the beginning of me working there just to kind of get a feel for what the customer was like and how to sell the clothes. I've done uh, d the merchandising, um, helping with Robert, sitting in on vendor meetings, picking swatches and things like that. I've done uh, the back end of the web, uh, merchandising that, taking all the web flats. Um, now I'm now I'm primarily organizing and shooting um, our creative campaigns, mostly for the, the new pennant line. But then also um, I have kind of one foot in, in the door of doing that for what we in-house refer to as the heritage line. Um, so it's I've kind of done everything from the top down in terms of dealing with our uh, apparel and what goes into making that and selling it. Well, that was the, the potted history. <laughs> um, the first thing that struck me was that while most people go to the US to sort of find the Ivy style, you actually went to the UK and discovered the tweed style. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I, I always find now talking to people that I maybe have done everything backwards from what is traditional in terms of people getting into both the industry and also just as an enthusiast. Um, even like the all of the forums like style forum um, and at, like the reddit forums exist and i think a lot of people kind of wiggle their way in through those and and i really had no idea about them until i was working at j press talking to one of my colleagues and they're like oh yeah like you can just look that up on uh mfa and i was like oh, i don't know what that is so i feel like i do everything a little backwards but it all works out in the end somehow so when you randomly walked into Walker Slater in London, I mean, did you have knowledge about which tweeds were the good tweeds, which ones you were after? I mean, was it a pair of Harris tweed trousers you came out with? I think it was Harris tweed, but I, and that was all I knew. All I knew, um, it was kind of like the household, I had the very baseline of knowledge, kind of like household names. And I knew of Harris tweed just because of its um, brevity, but I didn't. I didn't quite know what what made a tweed different from another tweed. Um, I didn't know that there were any kind of weights to fabrics. Um, I, I just kind of went in and I was like, I want something brown. <laughs> you have that? <laughs> and they're like, well, it, there's a lot of that. So I just kind of ended up look, browsing and, and was like, oh, yeah, I like this one. Yeah. Have you sort of uh, gone deep on the various tweeds uh, since that time? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I, we, I've now now knowing a few people in in the industry, um, especially some of the people at uh, Fox Brothers. They've they've really uh, upped my knowledge since just looking for something brown. So at the at the time, you hadn't really sort of developed a sort of acknowledged a fascination with menswear. You were just really after something very British that you could take home. What, what sort of items did you find in the other places you stayed? Um, I remember in Amsterdam, I found a very old barber jacket, just a quilted one that that was honestly 
two sizes too big for me. But at the time, I didn't really care. I just thought it was cool. Um, I was like, oh, I need that jacket. And then I found a few sweaters um, when I was visiting Stockholm and through Norway. Um, And then I remember the only mildly weird or bad experience I had was in Paris um, because I was kind of looking for things that were both like vintage or something new. Um, And in Paris, I remember my friends and I went into this one store and I immediately was started looking at uh, like the men's trousers and shirts and things. And at that at that time, I had longer hair and look uh, looked a bit more feminine. And the um, sales associate came up to me and he was like, no, no, like the the women's stuff's over there. And I was like, I know, I'm, I'm just looking here. And he was like, well, but but no. And I, and I was like, all right, uh, I guess we'll leave then. <laughs> but um, but generally like, everywhere, like Levis, Levinson's in um, uh, London, that was a really great experience for me. Um, and and kind of all of the vintage shops there. I, I wished, the, the only thing that I regret is that I didn't go to Savile Row um, when I was there. And now looking back, I'm kind of like, oh, he's like, you idiot. <laughs> I've been there a few times, but I'd never dare go into any of the tailors. But I do sort of hang on the railings, looking down into the basements where you can see them sewing away, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of had this half interest at that point where it was, I was mostly kind of like, okay, these are the, the brand names that I know, like the barber jacket. Um, and the, this is kind of... I knew vaguely what style I wanted. Like I was very into um, the twenties tailoring, but also some of the the workwear. Um, But I didn't quite have the knowledge base to know what exactly that looked like. It it was kind of like, um, kind of like when uh, non menswear people watch like Peaky Blinders and they're like, oh, like any flat cap, is going to be give that aesthetic when it's when it's actually very uh detailed and and difficult to achieve that look um and so i i didn't really develop that knowledge until a year and a half later so now i now i need to go back and go on a world tour and actually find things <laughs> that um fit with what i can appreciate now do you think that knowledge might actually stand in the way of discovering things based on intu- intuition and, and what you actually like? Yeah, actually, I, that's a good point. I think it, it was now, now since I know um, like background information on things and like I was saying with the denim people, like the specs and each detail and what makes something different or rarer or uh, common, I, I do kind of let that influence me a little bit in terms of what I look for. But I also, um, and w- this is kind of with everything involving uh, like my menswear and social media kind of journey, I, I try very hard to just do what makes me happy or makes me feel good. So I, I don't like to just buy something because of those specs. It's kind of like, well, first of all, do I have this already? Which is usually always the case, yes. And second of all, that like, does do is this something that I would have liked before I knew anything about it? Um, which I think is a 
I, I think is a good way to go about consumerism <laughs> as opposed to just wanting something because it's rare or cool or it costs a lot of money. Well, that was a very accurate description of uh, so much within menswear, where if it's from Japan, it's rare, it's expensive, it's very hard to get. All these things are like sort of dog whistles for for the real, the really qualified enthusiasts, the guys who really know the rules and what's uh, what's what and so forth. I don't know. I often feel that sort of limits things or. It's, it's very hard to live up to all these rules and demands and so yeah. forth. And then you, I feel like you always then have to not even one-up everybody else, but then end up one-upping yourself um, as if like you, you get a pair of really rare and expensive denim and you really love them. But then like, the next year something even rarer comes to light and then you like oh i need that instead but then the, the pair that you had that you liked are kind of now sitting in the corner but i also think that there is a healthy balance of someone who buys just to buy and have the coolest and rarest and newest thing and someone who um collects however often i, I think that the people who buy to buy use collecting as uh, a facade <laughs> but but i know that i do a little bit of both um but mostly collect i i like to think or i i hope <laughs> to think <laughs> that is a very very uh, difficult area there when you get into are you a hoarder are you a collector are you a menswear investor mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> i just have shit loads of clothes <laughs> yeah especially now with um it seems like there's a mad rush on anything that is kind of edwardian to even like 40s era where everybody's kind of like, well, if you don't buy it now, it's going to be gone forever because it won't last and there's only such a limited amount of it, Um, which I think there's some truth to that, but also it always kind of circles around and like at least uh, now where I'm at, it's a lot of people are like, hey, this doesn't fit me anymore. You're small, do you want it? Um, Kind of thing. But I also understand that a lot of stuff gets destroyed by costume houses and, and things like that. Um, so I, I think that there's a pretty big uptick in purchasing and purchase power of that range of clothing, which is also kind of sad to see because I think it, it limits accessibility for people, um, really just getting into it to have access to, um, like nice, well-made vintage clothing that they can learn from and how, going back to how I was told that you really learn from uh, feeling and, and having these items. I didn't know you could even find stuff that old now. Um, I'd be curious to know where you come across that because, I mean, around here, the vintage stuff now is like last week down to, say, <laughs> five years ago. I think the I think the majority of of the stuff, at least in New York and around Philadelphia, um, and I guess eBay too, generally is like that, like Y2K or seventies to now. Um, but I've found like a few pockets, especially on Etsy of, uh, vintage, like true vintage dealers selling that kind of stuff. Or even now, like I've kind of just accepted that if you want to find the best things, you have to physically 
go to someone who specializes in that. Like, um, like in New York, like Crowley Vintage has a phenomenal selection of things ranging from like all eras and it's just so well curated, but it's definitely getting harder and harder to find. The rumor is that Sean Crowley has a time machine. It's no way he could be finding that stuff otherwise. That's where he goes during the week. That's why yeah. nobody nobody can get in contact with him. He's back in the, the old ages. Yeah. Now, the reason I wanted to talk to you was because you have such a refreshing outlook on what you do. And I think clothes of late, well, especially my view on it, have been it's been getting hot because there's been so many environmental concerns there's so much greenwashing so much fast fashion so much garbage that i'm trying to find sort of positive stuff within it trying to regain a little of that joy is that something yeah. you can relate to yeah a, a bit i i definitely re relate to over the overconsumption of things and fast fashion and i i think that i I don't have, every time I think that I have knowledge on and an informed opinion on those topics, then I find out that either I, like I'm not wrong, but that there's such a broader conversation around them that I don't know of. Um, and one of the ones that I do kind of appreciate because it's even a conversation that I have with my girlfriend because um, she's someone who's really not a a huge clothing enthusiast and so um like she shops at old navy and target and things like that and i'm always kind of like well don't you want something that like you're paying more for that will last longer and and she makes a good point because then she's like well like this dress that i have from old navy i've had since like i was a senior in high school and so like what like it has lasted a long time and, I was, and i'm kind of like well that that's a good point um, yeah, how do you deal with that? Hmm. <laughs> that kind right, of it, sort of destroys your argument. <laughs> yeah, I think it really comes down to the way that we treat clothing. Um, and even I'm not a great example of that because I have so much that some t like I have a pile on my floor of things and that's not good. <laughs> um, and But whereas like she has what we would consider kind of fast fashion brands and they're all hung up in her closet like perfectly she takes really good care of them um and so i i think a lot of the discussion comes back to how do you treat and appreciate the garments that you have um to make them last forever um as opposed like but then also with greenwashing i i truly don't think any any brand um is truly sustainable because at the end of the day you are trying to sell something, even um, Patagonia and and all of those brands that kind of tout being environmentally friendly and things like like you can say that all you want, but you also are trying trying to sell a product. Um, and but I also don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with that um, or or wrong trying to get the best uh, product to someone. Um, because without that, then we we wouldn't have clothes, um, or at least not nice clothes. So I, I kind of have a weird relationship with sustainability um, and and kind of how the fashion market plays into that. Granted, I, I'm very, 
I'm I'm in a very narrow lane of of the broader fashion industry being in classic specialized menswear. So generally everything um, is made very quote unquote sustainably or with um, quality in mind. So I can't really speak on like the Zara's of the world. I mean, it is the nature of the clothing business, isn't it? That everyone is trying to sell stuff. So there's to various degrees, they are shitty to the environment and everything else, but none of them are going to be super good. I was interested though, about how you and your girlfriend, there's clearly a complicated situation there where she has all the cheap clothes, but takes care of them. You have all the nice stuff, but don't. Yeah. Yeah. She's always like, you have this really nice jacket. Like, why is it just laying here? And I, I kind of go back and forth. There's a, with how how hardly i care about my clothes in the sense that i'm not someone who gets something very expensive and then treats it so delicately because to me that does a, it's a disservice to that garment um because it's something that's made to be worn and worn out and and it's meant to do those things and stand the test of time it's not meant to kind of sit on a shelf and that's why it lasts forever um so i i tend to maybe stupidly um wear things in in situations that like maybe they shouldn't be worn in or kind of toss things around um for example, wearing like like nice suede loafers in the rain, or um, or things like that. But on the flip side of that, there is also kind of like the the negative um, care that that is kind of me having such an overabundance of things in a very small apartment where things can't all be hung up, um, especially not on nice wooden hangers. And I don't have a cedar chest to keep all of my sweaters and and things like that. So, yeah. so it kind of comes down to doing the best I can, um, but also knowing that I could probably do a bit better than, than the stack on my floor. Um, Sounds so yeah. like you're a little bit ashamed by the amount of clothes you have. Just a bit. <laughs> it's gotten a little excessive, I, w I will say, after having some conversations with... Um, colleagues and and friends about the amount of clothes that they have versus the amount of clothes that I have and I always I always kind of say like granted I'm at a point now where um, a good amount of the clothes that I have either I get for free from uh, my job or from knowing other people in the industry or things like that or I get them very heavily discounted for the same reasons um, and so it's almost I'm in a, fa a weird phase right now, kind of, of where I have a lot of stuff that I had gotten um, in that stage where I had kind of a half knowledge of quality in menswear, and and now a lot of things that I that I've acquired post that and having a, a broader knowledge, and I'm trying to kind of phase out the things from before with the things coming in. Um, which doesn't always work because things just seem to be coming in a bit faster than they, they do go out. Um, and in that sense, like I, 
I'm a, I have a little shame about it because of the consumerism aspect, but I also always kind of come back to that, like, this is my passion and there are people out there who collect like action figures and things like that. And so it is a true collection, um, but also kind of trying to walk that fine line of when is too much, too much. There's always a market though to resell good stuff, which yeah. might not be the case if you're buying very, very cheap fast fashion things. Right. Yeah. But also I, I have discovered that even some things that borderline fast fashion um, sell out much faster than the things that I have tried to sell that are very high quality. Like um, I I do, uh, I sell at a menswear market in, in New York, um, Alfargo's every month. And I was kind of shocked this past time because my dad um, was going to donate a ton of stuff that he had mostly uh, kind of like 2010s ish j crew so not not the highest quality of things um whereas i had kind of like 1950s baseball jerseys uh and like a ton of old like 30s shirts and things like that and so i was like okay well i'll just like take your stuff and sell it because it, it it's money so why not and his, all of his stuff sold out and then i was still left kind of like lugging things back home so it, it is interesting to see how the average consumer who comes through looks at the array of things and still picks that uh, quote-unquote fast fashion item. Maybe it just seems more familiar and they can relate to it and the sort of esoteric vintage stuff which is sort of really appreciated on the forums just hasn't sort of trickled down into the greater mass of people. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I definitely think that that's the primary reason. I mean, if I'm selling something and it's some sort of unheard of British brand, which make two shirts a year, <laughs> it's going to be a tough sell, at least getting someone to actually pay for it. But if it's something they can't shirt or whatever, that they know exactly what it is, it's easy. Right. But then that also then kind of leads into a conversation of um, how do you get people into shopping like the the vintage market or kind of being open to getting into new brands that might be better quality than the j crews or forever 21 or things like that because those things have become so, so synonymous with either nostalgia or comfort um, or things like that and i think that 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 also contributes to the fast fashion industry and kind of playing on um, just the the common knowledge and feeling safe with those brands. I think a lot of it comes down to people wanting quantity for little outlay. And we'll get nowhere saying to them, look, instead of those six cheap shirts, you could have bought this one really nice one. I think you'd need them to come in and feel it, try it, and have a good think about it because it's just so easy to go for those bargains every time or what you think is a bargain. Yeah. And especially because a lot of those people have never felt anything to that quality. Like even like I keep going back to my girlfriend. I, she now wears a lot of the, like the rugby shirts and um, sweaters that I end up acquiring. And just because she's like, Oh, these feel so nice. Like, and, or like this one is so soft. Um, 
And it's kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, to me, I know that. Um, but to someone who's not in, into it, like they've just never kind of felt that quality, even if it is just kind of like going into a store just to feel something, um, which is also even with like a lot of knowledge, I think gets lost sometimes. And I don't, I don't mean to keep throwing J Crew under the bus because I actually do really or your girlfriend. Like, like it. But yeah, and my girlfriend. <laughs> but um, but I, I have a, I recently bought kind of a, a J Crew shirt with um with their new line that has come out and everything. Um, and it is very, very similar to, at least in visually in style to, um, an old sixties Pendleton, uh, like part wool, part cotton shirt that I have. And I was putting together an outfit and I had the two of them kind of side by side. And I was like, there's just really no competition here. Like the Pendleton one feels and looks so much nicer than this J crew one. But if you took that the Pendleton out of the equation, the J Crew one looks really great. So it's kind of like, how do you introduce yourself, but also other people into, um, I guess maybe the tiers of quality and and what that looks like, and how even spending twenty dollars more on something gets you something that visually looks better and also feels better. It is hard to make those judgments when you're not comparing two items. I do the same when I'm trying to go through my archives, my collection, my hoard, trying to find stuff that I want to sell. Because I can't sit upstairs thinking, hmm, yeah, that jacket maybe. But if I go downstairs and I hold up two, compare them, well, it's obvious which one's the better one, which one might go. So the, the comparison is important. Yeah, definitely. Now, I didn't want to get into fast fashion. We sort of slipped into that. (laughs) (laughs) I did wonder, though, um, because you're pretty active on Instagram, has your collection grown in quantity through buying stuff for the Instagram? I think at first it did, um, which is interesting. Uh, Like Kind of going back to when I had that lack of knowledge, I definitely was 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 seeing what brands people were posting about um specifically like wax london and and their one jacket that they make or uh like rogue territory and 316 and i was kind of like oh like these are like the heavy hitter brands that like i need to have something from them to kind of be legitimate um and so i i think i i definitely would buy certain things um specifically for the instagram but also with the intention of wearing them and and thinking like oh well if these people are posting about them they must be good quality um but then kind of as i've moved further away from that and i've done this now for almost three years i really don't buy for the instagram anymore and and truly buy for myself um which also i'm not saying is is a good thing because sometimes I'm, I'm a very known impulse buyer, <laughs> but, um, but I, even with posting, I've was talking to um, one of my colleagues and, and saying like, I, I truly don't go out of my way to post things or to put it together an outfit specifically to post it. Um, it's truly everything that I do post is what I wear that day. Um, and so it's just kind of 
natural at this point um, to see something and just either buy it just because I like it and know I'll wear it or because I have an event to go to or things like that. None of it really comes back to showing off or posting it. I think that's a very healthy place to come to because there are so many people, I think, buying stuff really just to show it on Instagram. And I'm, I've done this myself a lot. I'll buy something, I'll show it on Instagram, hang it up and forget I have it, really. And it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's shit, really. <laughs> yeah. And then I think that it, it does kind of devolve into a bad relationship with those garments. Like I know that when I was buying things just to post them, now I kind of look at them and I'm and I'm like, why did you why do you buy that? <laughs> hmm. So, I think it it is it, I always just say like to buy things because you like it and if you are, are someone who posts things on the internet, like just get it like post organically what what you would wear. Um because I think that there is also a lot of people trying to one up in terms of creativity and even for myself lately i've kind of been trying to put together what i think are more creative outfits but it's funny to see that those those one those attempts uh kind of receive less feedback than the very basic ones that i post mm. so i think it's both interesting to see how people react but also um, how I react to that reaction um, and then what I choose to either wear or not wear again. Mm, well, that is interesting because uh, my next question would be um, when you're getting dressed at the start of the day, do you put together your outfit based on whether you're going to be taking a photo of it that day or not? Um, sometimes. I think... But I think that that's kind of an, an afterthought a lot because usually now I, I end up taking the photos on, on the weekend um, just because there, there's daylight. And so I do put together maybe a bit more elaborate or um, what I consider better outfits on the weekend and knowing that I'll take a photo of them then. Um, but I don't, I don't really consider that because I'm going to take a photo. Like if I could wear those outfits every day, I would, but I, um, I'm very open about having like pretty bad OCD. And so taking the subway to and from work, I, that triggers it a lot. And so I always, ha uh, have to, or want to wash everything that I wear to work, which prevents me from wearing certain garment, like wool that can't be washed. So it turns into like chinos and a rugby shirt or, and, and sneakers. Um, which I usually wouldn't post um, versus over the weekend when I'm when I'm just kind of walking around. I'll wear a tie and uh, a nice wool sweater and a nice wool uh, coat and things like that. That does make it special though, getting dressed up at the weekend. And, mm -hmm. and then I suppose the Instagram photo sort of becomes a bit incidental. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Just sort of a, from a technical point of view, how do you take your photos? Um, 
bringing my girlfriend back into it again. <laughs> um, a lot of people have asked if I use a tripod, which I, and even she has been kind of like, why don't you just use a tripod? And I'm like, it's New York. I'm always concerned that someone's just going to like run by and grab the camera. Um, so yeah. we've kind of developed uh, a routine where I, and that's also why all of my photos, I'm, I'm standing the exact same way because it, it takes all of 10 minutes um, of what we've got it down to where I'm like, okay, like I need a, a full body one today. And then she'll be like, all right, I'll stand here. You go there, look, look to the right and then I'll take it. Um, and then I kind of have a specific preset in Lightroom that I just kind of like throw on it. Don't, don't really give it that much thought and then post it but because that's another thing I don't, I don't like when social media, because I've done it um, not just with this, this account, but just generally I've kind of done social media for so long that once it starts taking up so much time, um, then it starts taking up your life and then you learn that you don't like it anymore. Um, so I try to give it as little thought as possible um, while still having it look good and, and with me being happy with how it looks. So that's kind of the process. <laughs> there was some real wisdom there, you know, because uh, I know from my own experience that if I'm going to be posting one outfit a day, that is pretty much what I do because it mm -hmm. takes so much time to think it, plan it, do it, post it, and it's just not worth the time. And then you start yeah. questioning why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I had the same thought um, during the, the pandemic when TikTok really took off. And and again, me trying to find kind of creative outlets. I was like, let me try this. And I had one TikTok go viral with like 2 million views or something. And um, and it was like, like, even my girlfriend was like, oh, like you should keep going. Like, maybe, like you'll, it seems like you're like picking up. And I was like, yeah, but like I... I stand in my room alone for like two hours, three hours a day trying to think of something funny to make and then film it like five times until I think it's perfect. And I was like, and I, I just don't want to use my time that way. Mm -hmm. um, and then also with like outfit photos too, um, or even just generally getting dressed. If I'm going to an event, I, I try to put some thought into it. I don't want to, because I do take a lot of pride in how I look, but also it's not something where I am planning an outfit out like a week in advance. It really just comes together in the 20 minutes before I leave, um, which I think actually adds to it looking nice and relaxed and that it has that kind of air of coolness where it's, it's so not thought out. So it looks so natural. So you don't spend ages uh, sorting your tie knot for the correct uh, wonkiness and the sort of all the sprezzatura add-ons. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I always I always think that those those little affectations work because there's so little thought put into them, and so it kind of defeats the purpose if you're actively trying to get the best messy tie. I feel like it's like similar to how the um, the messy bun for for women was a big craze when I was in high school and had longer hair and I spent like hours in front of the mirror trying to like perfect the messy bun 
but it was like, well, the point of it is to be messy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I see all these guys with their undone cuffs as well, where sort of half the buttons have to be undone so that other bros will see that you have proper cuffs. And it's just, oh, you're trying too hard, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And then I, it loses the magic. And, and you can, and it's really easy to, and clear to see when something loses that magic, I think. And so that's, mm. that's why I kind of try to intentionally not give so much thought generally to everything. Um, because I think that that one, it keeps me still liking it and passionate and happy with everything, but also two, it, it just looks better. Mm. Now, while you sort of initially had a sort of tweedy British fascination, I think you're sort of pretty firmly now in the, in the Ivy camp, uh, and Ivy again, having a, a minute again. Yeah. Um, I think... Well, it is interesting. So, like the the British heritage does cross over into Ivy style so much, um, mm. especially with like the rep, like the regimental ties and the schoolboy scarves and all of these things that are act truly British, or even just generally the UK in origin, like Shetland sweaters and things like that. And so, it kind of was a very natural progression from that Tweedy Britishness into Ivy style. And I, I think that also in the, the open market and like mass market, um, there's a lot of that going on right now, partially because it's just such a, a simple style, both of them, like British country with all the, the tweeds and the flannels and things like that and American Ivy that I don't think that they ever really truly go away and they sit very closely together on the spectrum of clothes that there's so much crossover and and so much of that has permeated across different styles uh, like even like the khaki chino that's like the staple of of ivy even if even if ivy and preppiness wasn't as a style wasn't in style you still see people walking around wearing chinos every day and so and and the same thing with like a a barber jacket, at least like where I am. People have worn those for ever since I can remember. So I think that it's it's always, both of those are always kind of there and kind of like hand in hand. Hmm. I guess while they occasionally bubble out into the sort of general fashion population, you have the, the country people in Britain with their shooting and stuff. I mean, they're always wearing their tweeds and you have the old money East Coast Americans with their old barbers and their old Volvos and whatever. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes it just sort of escapes for a while. Yeah. And, and then, of course, you have all the, the forum people who are desperately nerdy about it all. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. I, I this could be completely wrong, but from my perception, it it's also funny that I think that Americans tend to romanticize um, that Tweedy British country or even British like town, like the um, just like the well put businessman or profession, pro- professor or things like that, much more than the British maybe romanticize Ivy style and things like that. Um, like I think I've run into definitely many more anglophiles who are into ivy than i have british people into ivy style 
Hmm. I suspect that comes from a just a general interest in classic, traditional, proper menswear. Um, yeah. But if, if you're in Britain, I mean, you don't see an awful lot of it in daily use mm -hmm. there either. So it, it is kind of a sort of thing that Britain sells to the world. So when you see the, oh, what's the country vet program that uh, has been having a comeback again now? Uh, All Creatures Great and Small, which is really pushing the tweedy knitwear thing, where mm -hmm. these vets are changing their tweed suits several times a day <laughs> just to keep it yeah. fresh. That, I mean, that is selling tweed like crazy. Fair Isle sweaters, massive comeback this last year. Yeah, and Shetland sweaters too, which is, and it's always, and it is interesting, um, kind of that style being exported f from there and espe like especially Americans, but also elsewhere in the world kind of really latching onto that because Ivy also kind of has that similar trajectory. Um, maybe not now, but back when um, the Japanese kind of revived it and, and took it over. So it is interesting to see what kind of, makes an impact in other countries and what those origin countries of of certain styles think of those styles because even with um take ivy when they came and shot the the film like they always kind of say now that it, the people in it were so cherry-picked that most americans really weren't yeah. that <laughs> they were a bit um, late yeah and so it, i think that is very similar to the the average british person right now not wearing full head to toe like classic country attire but it's a nice thought <laughs> well it sort of comes around to the sort of cosplaying thing i mean that's basically what the japanese have been doing since i mean all their subcultures they're cosplaying various styles whether it's 1950s american greasers or kind of sucks that I couldn't remember more just then but I was talking to W. David Marks two weeks ago and he was talking about that as well but is cosplaying yeah and it but it also is really interesting how how they the Japanese as just a broader community didn't really like the, that cosplaying kind of came out from them not having uh, been able to tap into different styles and kind of saying like well what like what is this what styles can we have, really? Um, so I, it is a, it is always just fascinating how what seems like is it's blowing up in this other country to a different community it might just be like a small kind of ripple in the pond in reality. But I think that that, that cosplaying also kind of plays into um, Ivy style right now with the American community of a lot of people saying like, well, I really want to wear this style, but how can I make it not look like a, a costume? Um, and I, again, I think that that really goes back to having a sense of not caring um, to an extent, but also um, something with Ivy specifically is kind of like all of all, all those, well, it's been written down now, but all of those um, unwritten rules of how an outfit fits together and specifically what things go into the outfits, like an, a button down shirt and like a saddle shoulder sweater, um, and very specific belts and the penny loafers and things like that. Because when you have a checklist like that, it, it can either go one way and look really great, or it can go the opposite way where 
yes, technically you have all of the elements and you've checked all the boxes, but the outfit as a whole doesn't look, either doesn't look great or doesn't look like the style. Um, did these checklists start with the preppy handbook or did they really come into being in Japan? I don't think I've ever seen the checklists. I mean, I, not really. Yeah. Well, it's, um, I don't, I think that it honestly, they, it kind of came into play with those kind of old money families in the fifties and sixties of uh, like what, what to wear and specifically like dads raising their sons and taking them to be outfitted at Brooks brothers and J J press and things like that, where it was kind of like you pick a clothiers and then your sales associate really like puts together the outfits for you. And then having that limited kind of run of merchandise, it, it is all going to basically come down to a checklist hmm. because it's just what they stock. Do you think that people in the 50s and 60s were aware that there would be checklists and it would be really important on the internet in the future? Oh, absolutely. Or, or were they just getting dressed? <laughs> yeah, I, absolutely. I think they were, they were just getting dressed. And even... And I've seen like heated conversations about whether or not like white socks with loafers was is on the checklist. And it's kind of like, I don't, I truly don't think that people at that time were really thinking about it. I think that it was a ton of college kids who had like athletic socks in their drawer and they were just kind of like rushing out to go to class, didn't care what socks they put on, grabbed those and left. I don't, I don't, I don't think that anybody was sitting in their their dorm room running down a list like okay do i have my shetland sweater and things <laughs> like that and now it's just kind of been in a in a way been made up but also not because there are certain elements that um are in the canon like a shetland sweater um which is kind of undeniable but then there are also things again where everything was cherry picked um, where it was kind of like, oh, like sweatpants didn't exist. It's like, no, sweatpants definitely existed and people were wearing them. They just, they weren't photographed. Um, edited out of the book. Mm -hmm. it didn't, didn't fit. Mm. But with that, with that checklist now, with people kind of trying to adhere to that checklist that really truly didn't exist, there, one, it causes a lot of um, negativity within the the broader community of enthusiasts in, like interested in the style but also like i was saying you can kind of run down the checklist and go through everything and it could still not look right like if you have low-rise pastel colored chinos with like a plaid or like a, a bright gingham button-down collared shirt but but yet the collar doesn't have a roll um, and then a two-button navy blazer where it's like, yeah, I mean, you, you've checked off all of the details, but it doesn't look good. Um, or it doesn't look ivy and it doesn't give off that vibe. Um, so I've gotten into a few fights with people <laughs> where I've defended pleated pants because I, I've said, I mean, if you have high-waisted pleated pants with the perfect OCBD and penny loafers, that looks way more ivy than going down this checklist with with things that don't go together. Even so I can tell very, that that sounds authentic. Yeah, so it's very interesting to see how strict 
um, some people are and how non-strict people are and how, in my opinion, usually those non-strict people end up dressing the best. In my experience, there is a certain kind of person who is very, very obsessed by these rules. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're also the type of guy who uh, has a vintage car, which is in such pristine, flawless condition, and they like to display it and go into contests about that it's 100% shiny and accurate and so forth. Mm -hmm. Kind of boring. Yeah, it just loses the life of the clothes. Hmm. It does strike me, though, that with the Ivy style and the British style, there's an awful lot of clothes that go together. You mentioned that you sort of puzzle them together earlier. Mm-hmm. That there, there must be sort of almost infinite combinations possible if you have a certain hoard <laughs> in your <laughs> flat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, like I was saying, a lot of Ivy staples derive from... Um, just classic British pieces and and what is just daily life. Uh, like even in the UK now, this, the little school children still wear the the striped ties and blazers and with the the crested patches and stuff like that. And even in the US, I like with the high school I went to, I had a navy blazer with a patch pocket and a crest um, and gold buttons and things like that. Where it it all kind of flows together i've seen some people say um that british style kind of falls under the umbrella of like trad and that there are kind of certain stepping stones where you start at trad then you go down to ivy style and then you go down to preppy um and i somewhat agree with that um and i I definitely think that british kind of tailoring and thing and the elements that go into that are a bit more refined than Ivy style. Um, because, because the style like Ivy style was supposed to kind of subvert the conservative dress of the day. So it's supposed to kind of be fun and relaxed and much more casual than um, throwing on a full tweed suit with a, a stiff shirt and tie yeah is that a sort of old money versus less old money thing where the brits are i mean generations and generations have been taking their kids to savile row that's sort of at one level but going to j press with your with your son is it's it's okay but it's not savile row right but then i suppose it was also bespoke versus ready to wear yeah, and I I think that there there is also kind of a, an unspoken competition between those two styles of like like what is the most wealthy looking in a weird way I guess. Um, but yeah, it, it's it is always interesting. But it, like I like we were saying that they kind of permeate into each other of people looking for Donegal trousers and Harris tweed uh, herringbone jackets to wear with their khaki pants and loafers. Um, And I think vice versa too, when you have kind of like cotton drill trousers um, and a barber jacket and wellies to like go out and walk around in the country. (laughs) Yeah. 
I sort of get this feeling that the fun is being sucked out of it a bit when you're talking about these people who have their, their cute little outfits. Probably they come on collector's cards so they can sort of select a card for the day. Yeah. That's probably a good business idea. <laughs> <laughs> the Ivy cards. You well, actually, it is interesting because there used to be, um, for those kind of like classic Ivy clothiers, they would mail out uh, instead of a catalogue they would be almost like giant playing cards that had an outfit on it. And then you would flip it over and it would say what, what the clothes were. Okay. So that could be something that comes back. There is generally nothing new in the world. (laughs) I was going to ask you because you're not now sort of in the, in the new Ivy world, but you also collect vintage sort of quality wise, new versus old. Um, I mean, are the new clothes replicating the old stuff well i mean from the heritage community i mean we are sort of the the raw denim jeans have to be stitch accurate and uh, all the details in this but now that ivy is becoming more fashionable what's the quality like um i'm always kind of on the side that nothing will ever truly replicate the quality of vintage but there is also a sense of nostalgia that gets in the way of how we perceive new clothing versus old clothing. Um, like, for example, a lot of the Ivy curmudgeons are always saying, like, oh, like on eBay, you have to like look for like 80s Brooks Brothers shirts. Like, like ideally, you would get a, a 60s one. But if you can find 80s, like the quality is just as great. Like, and, and they talk about the shirts today and they're like, the quality is like has gone down so badly since like at, even like the 80s and 90s. When in reality, um, even the shirts then weren't of, of high quality and there were different issues, whether it be in manufacturing them or the, the quality of the fabrics that they're made with. And it's kind of nice that I have that, that knowledge working in the industry, but to, to even to like the hardcore enthusiasts who haven't worked in the industry and don't have some of that background knowledge, to them, it's it's a lot of nostalgia playing tricks where it's they they really do think that each year things decline when in reality the the quality really hasn't been there since the the fifties and sixties just in the nature of the way things are made and also with even just the availability of factories and things like people are so into made in America um, but really like there there are only maybe like three to five shirt makers in America that can do mass production as opposed to even like 20 years ago when there were maybe like 20. Um, and, and so I don't necessarily blame brands for the quote unquote lack of quality or lack of details um, because it really is just up to what is possible to do now. And a lot of what is possible to do now um, doesn't really match up with what people were doing in the 50s and 60s. But going along with that, I do think that generally um, looking at things non-comparatively, that the, where the quality of things is at right now, is generally pretty good. Um, I mean, you have like Mercer and Sons making amazing shirts, um, and you you kind of are now seeing all of these boutique 
brands and specialized made-to-measure uh, makers popping up that are trying to inject more quality back into clothes, which I think is a great thing because it kind of goes back almost to like the quote-unquote olden days of uh, like merchants where it's like you you specialize in shirts and you make shirts and you make the best shirt um, mm. as opposed to we make all of this range of clothes but nothing perfectly. It's interesting the, the idea that everything was better in the olden days because at what point in the olden days was it at its peak? It, it would surely be possible then to pinpoint um, exactly when it was. But today uh, we've got so much better technology. Uh, yeah. We can we can design stuff fantastically. So if we're not making good stuff, it is a conscious choice where we're making it down to a price. We're simplifying things. Yeah. We're overlocking seams instead of felling them because it saves money. So we could right. be making really great stuff. Yeah. I also think um, even in a broader sense, I know that kind of right now we're speaking pretty narrowly, but with with things like athletic apparel um, and even even kind of like the technology that goes into like the puffer jackets that so many people wear. Um, I, I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues who was really into, into that. Um, and he was saying like, it's, it's almost just like you can't compare that to like an old tweed jacket. Like they, because tech, technically the, the newer advanced uh, garments are designed to keep you warmer than that or are made to kind of provide optimal comfort and everything. Um, so, it, it, which that comes down to like, not even quality, just it's just different. Like you, you just really can't compare them. Um, but then actually going back and comparing like a, a Harris Tweed Balmacan jacket like, or coat today to one identical in the 60s, like you were saying, you do kind of lose a lot of those very small details just to manufacturing cost and power. But mm. I also think that some now it's gotten to the point where a lot of consumers read too far into that. Um, even I've seen on like a few different platforms and people I've spoken to uh, about the, re the reason why collar points have gotten shorter is to save money when in reality that's that really doesn't do much unless you're buying massive like thousands upon thousands of shirts um, yeah that doesn't sound very plausible right. <laughs> it just sounds like a style thing yeah a fashion point but it is interesting though that if you bought a harris tweed coat in the 50s or 60s that was your going to be your coat for the next 20 30 40 years right most people who buy one today they might have forgotten it by next year or the year after yeah i mean that also kind of circles back to um how people care for their clothes and or and also the knowledge that people have about clothes because um i think that plays a big role too in in what people choose to buy and the expectations that go behind that um it, of just not having that base knowledge that people back 
in the day kind of did have, whether it was because they were researching it or their parents told them or the merchant who they would go to all the time would, would inform them of even something as simple as like a tropical wool trouser. Um, you, the the average consumer, when they hear that the word tropical, you kind of jump to like, oh, that's a warm weather trouser. When really that's just the weave. It can be a winter trouser that's in a tropical weave. Um, but so like they might not they might not buy that then because they just hear that and associate it with something something different. And also kind of the same thing with just wool generally. Like you might see like here, like, oh, like it's a wool trousers. So like that will keep me warm in the winter when it could be a really, really fine mm. trouser at a very um, low, like at a very different weight from something that will actually keep you warm. Um, and so I think there's a, just a lack of knowledge too that goes into buying. And so if you buy that really thin weight wool and you wear it out in like negative 10 degrees, you're kind of like, oh, the quality on this sucks. Like, why isn't this keeping me warm? When in reality, you just bought the wrong product, but the average person doesn't realize that. Hmm. That just came to mind sort of randomly now. My mother-in-law who, when she was 18, I think it was just around her birthday. This was in 1960. She took the train into Oslo and went to the good clothes shop and bought a Gloverall duffel which she still has to this day. It hasn't been used for a while now, but it was clearly used for two or three decades at least and held up well. Mm -hmm. a, a real investment piece then, and it was a conscious effort to buy just that. In 1960, I thought that was... Because there wasn't even the internet then. How did she research this and find out that that was the best brand for a duffel coat? Mm -hmm. Or it's also crazy to me, even we have such a an archive of all of our catalogs dating back to, um, I think the the earliest one that we have is from the 40s but um but even even with that it, it's kind of mind-blowing because it's just you look at it and it's all black and white and you don't really have even photos of everything so you're just you're just reading like blue and white striped shirt and you with a with a button-down collar and you have no image of it and people will just blindly be like yeah i'll take three um <laughs> Just completely blindly they, trusting the how quality. How could they possibly make a decision based on so little information? Yeah. Oh, baffling. <laughs> no stitch count, no fabric weight. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. So, but it was just assumed at the time that it would be good quality. Um, but then also, I, I do think we, similar to that nostalgia um, concept that I was saying before, really what's left over from those times are the things that were good quality. Like, um I'm sure that there was the Forever 21, like Shein equivalent of clothing that existed back then. And we just don't have it now because it hasn't, the quality wasn't there and it didn't last, like stand the test of time to be existing now. Do you think there really was sort of cheap, shitty stuff back then as well? To an extent. I mean, even, even the cheap, shitty stuff back then, I think, is far beyond the cheap shitty stuff of today <laughs> i mean back back then it was sort of i mean if you bought a shirt you'd actually bought a shirt it was a i mean it was right. an investment and you bought yeah. a pair of shoes because it could be resold five times and you'd have them for 15 years i mean part yeah. of the problem today is that we buy all this lifetime stuff 
which will last us a lifetime and we have 20 of them. So how many lifetimes are we expecting to live? Right. Right, exactly. I think that, and, and that goes into overconsumption too. I think there is this broader kind of campaign that um, companies are running where it's like, this will last you forever, but also buy five of them. And, it, yeah. and it's kind of like, okay, well, if it'll last me forever, I shouldn't need to buy more than one um, in theory, but it's selling that that quality component where it's kind of like, yeah, like still still buy into the fast fashion purchase habits but feel good about it because this is quote-unquote good quality i think it comes down to a sort of sneaky definition of lifetime where it's mm -hmm. not our lifetime they mean it's um the lifetime of uh some fly or something that, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it doesn't really actually last anything at all yeah now you're clearly a very dedicated enthusiast how does that work out with also working in the industry which has a sort of totally different perspective on things um it can be very frustrating <laughs> i feel like that's the first the first word that i would use to describe it because i kind of how i was mentioned earlier all of these forums online um that i i do admittedly lurk in a lot of them just to kind of see what people are saying and that they have opinions and it, it truly doesn't matter. I've now noticed um, at what knowledge level someone is, how old they are, where they come from. Um, like it kind of just across the board, There's there are always people who think that they know more about the industry than they do, or they get like just a little piece of information and then run with it. Um, there, at one point um, with J-Press, there was someone posting on a forum where they were like, why doesn't J Press like just go back to making their trousers at Hurtling? Like those were su like far superior to what they're doing now. Um, just going on and on and on about it. And me and uh, one of my coworkers were kind of talking about it, and we were like, they just have no idea like what goes what first of all what the capabilities of manufacturing are at right now. Um, even even just compared to like I was saying twenty years ago, um, and people just don't really have a grasp on how much it costs to make a garment or even like minimums, how much, like how much companies actually buy. Um, so, and, and what the final cost comes out to of a garment. Um, and not only that, but also just something as simple as expectations of how large a company is. Um, I mean, I, like, like I'm always very transparent that at, at J Press in corporate, there's really only five of us um, doing everything, um, which <laughs> which everybody's always kind of like, really like that that small because it's just kind of expected that these companies have massive teams. I, I've heard the same thing about um, this is this none of this isn't. Uh, don't take this as fact, but but I've heard even the same kind of thing about like Tom Brown, where like their team is so so small when you would think that it's massive. Um, and so there are all these misconceptions kind of floating around, but people take them as fact because they're such an enthusiast and they have a knowledge of, of to an extent of those brands, but not from actually working in them. Um, and so a lot of it is kind of reading criticisms or things of like, well, what if, and refraining from saying anything because 
you just can't. <laughs> mm. I suppose it's sort of romance versus business. Um, mm-hmm. Where as an enthusiast, you have this romantic vision of how things could be and should be and uh, would be if I was in charge and so forth. Harris Tweed plays love nice in, nicely into that because it's such a lovely story. But of course, I mean, even the Harris Tweed weavers have to get paid. So there's a business aspect of that, which isn't as great a story as sitting at home weaving into the night mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely and and even even something as simple as um like made to measure made to order off the rack like those distinctions uh and and the assumptions that or or expectations that um enthusiasts have like i've had some of the most knowledgeable enthusiasts um come in to get fitted for a made to measure suit or a jacket and they're like well can we move the buttons here and can we like do x y and z to this and like whatever and then they're very confused when when you say no and they're like well that's such a simple alterate like adjustment and it's but then it's kind of like well in your mind yes but when we have to send this off to the factory to be made and they're going through the process where it's it's not just someone sitting around physically cutting the fabric and and doing everything start to finish um, because we have the technology now for machines that can do the cutting and things like that, where when we have a specific pattern and you make those kinds of adjustments, there is actually a very large disruption, um, which just as an enthusiast, you would never think of because you just think of, of these things as such uh, in such an old school way like that that these brands still do things the old school way because they're an old school brand Hmm. do people get really upset when they can't um have the fully bespoke uh, service right but but uh, which again goes just back to knowledge of clothing and the industry where it's where like yeah it's made to measure but that doesn't you don't get that bespoke experience because it's made to measure there's still a pattern that you have to adhere to but also i think made to measure made to order bespoke have all the lines have gotten so blurred between all of that um that i don't necessarily blame consumers for having some confusions or uh misperceptions I think a lot of that comes down to marketing as well, because I see some places now offering a semi-bespoke, which mm-hmm. seems to be sort of made to measure, but with a little icing on the top. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's... there. Like I was saying, there are a lot more specialised merchants now um, and and like boutique cloth- clothiers that really now push new ideas which is always great to have kind of like new things in in the market and new ideas but also it does confuse consumers a lot um like i was saying of the expectations that are possible from brands um and also now having like behemoths like amazon uh where it's like a massive corporation and and the kind of thoughts circling around capitalism and consumerism and corporate culture and things like that right now um kind of relating back to how I was saying misperceptions about how exactly how large these teams are um, and truly what they are capable of doing and producing. 
Mm. The idea of made to measure and all the new technology we have does make me see fascinating opportunities for having clothes that actually fit. Now I'm short and stout, so I don't really fit anything. <laughs> but when you have 3D knitting, you have machine cutting, all this, you could actually quite easily make clothes for non-standard bodies. Uh, yeah. I did did try this uh, dot suit a few years ago that there was this um, Chinese company, I think, called Zozo. So you'd, you'd first order this tight-fitting suit with all these coded dots on, and then you'd scan it using your phone. Very, very clever technology. And they'd sort of get full-body measurements of you. And then you could order in the app, say, a button-down shirt, trousers, whatnot. Um, they stopped providing it in Europe quite quickly. Uh, the trousers and shirt didn't really fit that well. But... The technology is there. What worries me a bit there, though, is that um, that would be all business and technology. The romance is sort of completely dropped because there's no longer Alice in England sewing on the buttons and all this. You've sort of just <laughs> made yeah. a product. Right. And, and, and that kind of what goes into those products really is in my opinion, like 90% of the selling point for people interested in them. But it's also interesting now how we're coming kind of full circle that um, in the Edwardian era and even like before that, uh, and the founding of Brooks Brothers, that everything was made bespoke um, to people and to people's bodies. And then Brooks Brothers is famously known for having the first off-the-rack off suits and, and jackets and things like that. And then how that became such a standard. And now it's it's almost like we're doing a U-turn and going back to that idea of things should be made to you um, and for you. And so it, it, I think that there will be a lot of both technology, but also more interest in actually high, hiring sewers and tailors and um, workers to provide that experience again. Is this perhaps wishful thinking for the menswear elite? Or I'm sort of thinking that we've got the whole ghost of uh, streetwear and techwear and all this other stuff, which is taking clothes in a completely different direction from what is, I guess at best, a kind of a sort of nostalgia group. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm say, in there as well. I love it as well, but um, I sort of I see all this sort of tech streetwear stuff, and it's just what, what is this? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I would say it definitely falls under more of the wishful thinking as opposed to what is actually going to happen. But you, but yet it is. It is kind of happening to some degree, um, like you see with brands like Proper Cloth and and other kind of like fully made to measure services that have marketed themselves as that and been very successful. But I think in the broader scope of mass market, people are, that's definitely not the norm. Um, but even, I, I would be very interested to see a streetwear brand that went into kind of like made to measure stuff. Like even if it was kind of made to measure t-shirts or made to measure um, pant like trousers, things like that, and what that would kind of look like. Well, they are kind of moving that way with the 3D knitting machines, mm -hmm. uh, even in the sort of heritage scope, because I think uh, Peregrine in the UK have 3D knitting machines now. 
I'm not sure if they use them for knitwear or if it's more for t-shirts, but um, they're definitely advancing the technology. Not everyone is using machines from 1870 <laughs> to keep <Right>. it authentic. <laughs> yeah, it, it, I think technology will, we will definitely see more of that play a role in um, garment manufacturing. However, I will say probably less so in the very narrow kind of classic menswear scape, at least in in the next dozen or so years because of that focus on on storytelling and showing like these are the knitters in Scotland making this and and this is why you should buy this well I mean as long as there are people uh, interested and promoting it then uh, I mean there's so few of these places left uh, that I think they just need enough business to survive yeah. And, and they're okay. Um, I don't think many of them are... I mean, they're never going to grow massively again. It's not as if British manufacturing is going to suddenly start picking up again, I think. Yeah. But it is... It always... They always seem to bounce back, um, which I, I will say is very impressive. Even, um, like, in the US, with closing all of the, uh, the denim mills and how now Vidalia mills kind of reinvigorated that that u.s manufacturing um or, or even with southwick closing and then kind of re being revived um to bring american production back to kind of tailoring tailored clothing so they it, there always seems to be even when it looks bleak some something always comes back up but i i i don't know at what point you rely on that and then suddenly it's not there I think for British manufacturing, things were looking so bleak that they just closed down. And um, I mean, those factories won't come back because either the machines are gone or the factories have been redeveloped. And I mean, part of it is that it's not actually that expensive. The Scottish made lambs wool sweaters, surprisingly cheap for what you get, which is a brilliant product. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think it also comes down to the the supply of workers um like I, even the amount of tailors left in the world has is significantly depleted from even like the 80s um and so i think it's it's even there could even be such a high demand for the product but if you can't find the people to make the product then you're kind of lost that is tough because i think a lot of young people don't see the glamour of the garment industry and if they do it's more the kind of job you have rather than sitting hunched over a sewing machine for 50 hours a week so right. yeah that is a, a hard sell definitely yeah now clearly you are a young person dressing like an old man <laughs> I say this with kindness and fondness. <laughs> what, what do your peers think of this? Can they relate? Are they? Are you con converting more people? Um, I think I've definitely gotten some of my friends interested, at least in in the clothing that I wear. Less so how I style it, um, because actually, like my kind of core group of friends that I hang out with are not fashion people they're all my friends from college 
um, who've gone in very different directions from me career-wise. And and a lot of them um, aren't really clothing people. And so one, I think there's a, well, I guess there are a lot of opinions coming from all different directions of like, like how do you spend so much money on clothes? How do you have so many? And then, and then you get into the, my girlfriend saying that's a grandfather outfit um <laughs> i get that from my wife <laughs> yeah and so they there are definitely comments but also at a certain point it's now just become so uh synonymous with who i am as a person that that it's just expected and but i do think that that kind of deters a lot of people um who might not feel confident in their ability to wear these clothes and feel comfortable um, where they're kind of like, I don't know, people are going to stare at me. My friends are going to like say I look stupid and things like that. And and I always kind of say like, yeah, like the comments will come at first. And like, I, I would be lying if I said that, that I didn't have that phase, but eventually you just get past it. And, and then all of the comments have been made and everybody just kind of expects that. Do you find people do stare at you? Um, less so in New York, more so when I go back home to suburban Philadelphia. <laughs> right. Um, I think, I think it's just having an environment. I mean, like New York is the perfect example. Like you could see someone in a clown costume walking down the street and, and just be like, oh, that's normal. Um, or as, as opposed to like, if you're someone living in like the like rural, like Midwest where you have a town of at most like 20 people and everybody <laughs> wears the same thing. If you kind of walk out where head to toe, like 1930s, then yeah, I, w I would say it's, that's a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> you just have to say, I'm a time traveler. Ignore me. Yeah. But I think most people have enough with their own inadequacies and concerns and traumas that they don't really pay that much attention to others. Well, that's what I like to think anyway. I know I'm terribly judgmental at times, but I don't say anything. So people are safe around me. <laughs> I don't tell yeah. people they, they dress stupid or look dumb or... Yeah. Well, I, I think that one, people are much more concerned with themselves, but also two, that person who's staring at you might not might not be thinking you look stupid. They might be thinking like, that's such a cool coat. Like, you know, and I think kind of twisting it to be that you you just develop this sense of confidence and like you don't really, then you stop looking to see if people are looking. And it's not as if you're a punk or a steampunk or something that is sort of really far out. I mean, you're just very nicely dressed. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but even like, even with the, those kind of more wild styles too i think people know of that cultural significance um that generally i like to think that even if you're dressed kind of like a grandfather or even if you kind of go full vintage with with like a bowler hat or a top hat or things like that that you kind of just become a character and less so something to mock um in people's minds like I've kind of seen it with a few people where it's kind of like that then becomes their identity and but but it's celebrated as opposed to being torn down. Do you think 
it depends whether someone's doing it with a genuine conviction or whether they're just playing at it and how can you tell the difference yeah yeah i would agree with that and i think well i think that you can there's always kind of like a feeling that you get when if, if say someone's wearing a top hat that if they're doing it because they want a reaction or if they're doing it just because they genuinely enjoy it i think it, i think there's like a way that people present themselves and fit themselves into spaces when they want to be noticed versus when they don't want to be noticed yeah it's, it's, it's quite the conundrum really i mean are they, is it just a cry for help <laughs> like a, a signal like a now i'm gonna look at people wearing fancy hats and be like oh what's wrong not many people wear hats nowadays are you into yeah. hats is that a step, try a step to be. too far. <laughs> I I like a good like baseball hat. Um, and I've now accepted bucket hats. I think that certain hats look good on me, and others just don't. But I do have a few um, kind of like Baker style, like Baker boy hats that yeah. I love. Um, but I will say that sometimes I'm a little. I, I fall into that I don't that category of I don't know if I want to wear this and have people be shouting out Peaky Blinders and things like that. <laughs> well, that's, um, a, that's a risk, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I I, I like hats. I I have a few uh, old fedoras and things like that, but I don't personally. I think that I I would look like I was cosplaying if I wore those. Yeah, I mean, I have a few hats. I feel awfully self-conscious the moment I put them on, but after about a quarter of an hour, I'm I'm sort of okay, yeah. and it just feels good. But you just have to get over that bit where you think everyone's looking at you and thinking, mm -hmm. "There's that person in that hat." Ha, ha. Yeah, <laughs> I also think that it's it's also interesting too, though. Like I actually saw someone discussing those kind of Baker Boy style hats, like. Um, in a Reddit thread and, and someone was like, I think that this is kind of like the one piece of clothing where you have to wait until you're older to have it look good because it, on a younger person, you you look like you're out of newsies. Right. Well, that's just a prejudice again, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's not It's not fact. Right. And I was kind of like, oh, that's a an interesting take. But it, it's just always interesting to see how people kind of think of when when and where is acceptable to wear certain things. If you like it, wear it. Yeah. Yeah. In closing, Laura, where do you see the Ivy Heritage menswear classic trad movement going in the future now? Um. Well, with it kind of being at, at the forefront of mass market menswear right now, I do think that we've hit a peak. And I, I personally think that that peak was this past fall, where now I think that the broader trend is, it's not over and it's not even like, like most of the way on the, the downswing, but we've we're, we were here and I think that we're now kind of sloping a little bit. Um, but what I will say is, is that trad and, and Ivy and preppy clothing and 
and all of that and British um, country, it, it's always been around, like I said, like you see people walking around wearing chinos all the time. And so I don't think that it will ever completely drop off, but the styles all cohesively together, I think we'll have another two years until maybe the next big thing comes around. Yeah, and I suppose as time passes, the people who actually remember when these things were the current fashion are all disappearing as well. So yeah. it becomes a more and more theoretical past. Right. Okay, Laura, yeah. anything you'd like to add in closing? Anything you'd like to mention? Um, I don't think so. I, uh, thank you for having me. I it This was kind of nice to just almost have a stream of consciousness. I know that I, I kind of, when I start talking about this stuff, I, I do tend to ramble a little bit. <laughs> Everyone thinks they do, but they seldom do. Oh, good. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> it's one of these uh, things where you beat yourself up for no reason at all. Yep. Sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, that was, that was kind of my complete thought. So you're good. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. It was a huge pleasure. Yes. And um, I'll catch you later. Yeah, you too. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.